Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host on Ask a Leader for the December 26, 27 edition of the show. We're live right now, folks. Dusting off some holiday from yesterday. Hope you're having a good time, some good time off, good time together. My first guest is going to be live from Barcelona, Iliana Sepero, curator of one cool exhibit entitled Cuba is at the Annenberg Space for Photography in Los Angeles that ends March 4th of next year and next and then we'll have a, a pre-recorded but it's still very fresh folks a malcolm warner executive director of the laguna beach art museum he'll present a cornucopia i promise you of riches entitled california mexicana missions to murals 1820 to 1930 and that one that ends on january 14th so it's time to buckle down your schedule and see what it's all about We'll be right back with Eliana, live from Barcelona, España, Catalunya, that is, in just a brief moment. Stay tuned. everybody welcome back to the show my guest for this first part of the show is Iliana Sepero art historian curator and art critic she curated the exhibition Cuba is at the Annenberg Space for Photography as part of the Getty's initiative Pacific Standard Time Los Angeles Latin America and that is the subject of this interview Iliana's dissertation on visual propaganda in Argentina under Peronism was recently awarded with the fifth annual Joan and Stanford Alexander Award in Photography Research from the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. Ileana was professor of history of photography at the University of Havana for two years and taught academic semesters there at uh, New York University to students that during her tenure at the Ludwig Foundation of Cuba. And her professional career includes curatorial work at the Fototeca de Cuba de Cuba and at the Ludwig Foundation of Cuba. She was also assistant curator of the Montreal Biennial 2007 and co-curated the exhibition Cuba Art and History from 1868 to today, held at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in 2008. She continues to write and lecture extensively on Cuban art and photography, including courses on Latin American art and photography at the New School, Hunter College, and New York University. She is currently working on a book manuscript on post-war Argentinian art under Peronismo. She was raised and educated in Havana, Cuba. She completed her PhD in art history at Stanford University. As I've said, and I'll repeat, she comes to us live. It's such a treat from Barcelona, Spain. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Eliana Sapero. 
Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much, and good morning to everyone. And you're and you're three hours away from a, a nice, uh, respectable Spanish dinner, so where you are. So, congratulations. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Congratulations, Ileana, on an exhibition that puts on the map for us from behind the orange curtain the Annenberg Space for Photography. Some of us, it's a bit of a trek, but it's worth every moment that you all can press on into L.A. and get there. Your curated work offering both remarkable art and also an education. You present in Cuba Isaliana, a country that is hidden to the rest of the world and sometimes hidden from Cubans themselves. So let's, uh, let's talk about first the, the kind of balance that you were trying to strike with the artists, both from Cuba and those from beyond. Yes, uh, Claudia. Um, my idea about this show is to present some layers of the complexity of Cuban reality today because, of course, uh, the United States uh, has always had a very you know, difficult relationship with Cuba and Cuba with the United States. So um, it's, it's not a lot of knowledge what Americans have of the island, which is very, very close geographically to to the U.S., but so far away in terms of knowledge and content, etc. So the, the main idea for the show was not to talk about the revolution, not to talk about the famous pictures that everybody knows from the 60s, but what is Cuba today, what people feel about Cuba, what people think in Cuba, and not only that, not only the reality of Cuba, but also the reality of the Cuban diaspora in the U.S. So that was that is in, in broad uh, strokes my main idea about this show. So when you talk about the reality that, that is even hidden for Cubans today, one, uh, one aspect of this reality is the life of the 1%, for example. And uh, because many, many images that, um, that people have about Cuba and many of the stereotypes that people have about Cuba is the Cuba... Uh, that is poor, the Cuba that is full with American cars, the Cuba that in a way is frozen in time. Yes. So, uh, so it's, part, it's partly true, but Cuba is also a place that is constantly changing. The country is constantly changing. And a reality that many Cubans don't know is the, the incredibly, incredible lifestyle of the 1%. And when I talk yes. about the 1% in Cuba is not only the people not only the people that belong to the military caste and the upper crust of the government who confiscated the houses of the former Cuban bourgeoisie at the beginning of the revolution, right. and they immediately occupied these houses and in, they immediately occupied these neighborhoods. So part of this noble, rich kind of class in Cuba uh, is also uh, composed now of uh, foreign investors who have married locals and, you know, they live in these mansions. Also, uh, some Cuban entrepreneurs, uh, collectors, art collectors. And, uh, of course, there is a whole class of artists in Cuba, the creative class, yes, uh, which is very privileged because they are able to keep their income, the, the income of their sales. They are able to travel more or less freely in and out of Cuba. And, you know, they, they can buy uh, properties and, you know, they, they enjoy a very, very 
uh, good lifestyle in you know in, in, in comparison to to ordinary Cuban standards, living Cuban standards. So some one of the one of the most important segments of this exhibition is how they live. So you you have these incredible pictures of women cruising the Malecon, which is the seawall in Havana, in a beautiful convertible and drinking champagne or wine. And yes, then you and have it, their mansions, and the mansions, especially for the audience in, in, in L.A., some people thought that they were in Beverly Hills, that these pictures were of houses in Beverly Hills, but no, they are in Havana. Right, right. It, it could be, yeah, I was thinking it looks like a Long Island affluent class there. Well, while we're talking about that one sector of the 1% in Cuba, and I, we've had an opportunity, the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach has, has had Roberto Fabello and Estereo Segura. And so are they a member members of that class that you're talking about, the 1%? Because the, the museum... Definitely, uh, okay, because yes. I was, yes, I was always asking the museum director when I'd interview him about their exhibits, and you know, I, I kept thinking, oh, these people are underpaid artists, and he, but he didn't talk about the 1%. He just said, no, no, they're okay. They're international. But that, so that's, that puts a real face on part of that, the creative class, and as you said, the entrepreneurs and the others. So you have yeah. a, I mean, it's just an amazing array of Cuban photographers and American and, um, well, expats and, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if you want to start with um, Raul Canibano. Um, he's born in, and he's still based in Havana. You want to say a little bit about what's coming through with his, his uh, spiritual themes and his background a little bit to, to tease everybody to get them over to the exhibits before March 4th and when the exhibit closes. Right. So, so um, the idea of the show was not only to present, as I told you, the contemporary Cuba, but also um, we we, we uh, gather a very interesting group of uh, photographers based in Cuba. Others are Cuban Americans, and others are uh, American photographers. But within this array, we selected four photographers to be the featured photographers of the yes. show. Yes. Two Americans and two Cubans. So the Cubans are Raul Cañibano and Lacey Quesa, a woman and a man. And the other two Americans are Elliot Erwitz and Tria Yovan, a woman and a man. So Raul Cañibano is considered today the most important documentary photographer in Cuba. Okay. And his work uh, uh, shows a vast array of, of themes, especially the everyday life in the city and in the countryside. And one aspect that he has been working for a long time is the uh, San Lazaro uh, Day Feast. So San Lazaro is what is considered in Cuba an oricha. An oricha is a deity in the Afro-Cuban religion in Cuba. And this, kind, this particular deity is very popular because it has to do with diseases. Okay. And um, he is like a combination, a fusion between a Babaluaye, which is, who is this uh, uh, Yoruba Orisha, and Yoruba is this uh, religion from, originally from, from Nigeria that was brought by African slaves to Cuba. And since the slaves were not able to practice their own religion, they fused their uh, beliefs with Catholicism. So what they did was to identify each Orisha with a Catholic saint. So in the case of Babaluaye, there is a big sanctuary, uh, not a big sanctuary, it's a small sanctuary, but in the outskirts of Havana. And every December 17th, there are many uh, pilgrimages um, 
I'm, I'm sorry, how do you say... Um, That's a pilgrimage. People who go on pilgrimage. <laughs> they're, ne- they're kneeling, you're right. And you said it's small, you said it's large, but it's large institutionally speaking. It's a well-institutionalized, ritualized yes, place, yes, but, but a small the, the locale. It's not big, it's not big, but the, the, this day, this particular saint is very popular in Cuba. So there is a big pilgrimage from different parts of the country, and especially from Havana, yes. um, to pay an offer to this to these things. So that's why in the picture you see people dragging and people um, crawling uh, on the streets and dragging uh, weights with them. Pilgrims, that's what I, what I wanted, uh, the word that I was searching in my mind, pilgrims. Yes, and yes. Um, the, 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 the festivity is so important for Cuban people that not by chance, former President Obama announced the, um, the opening up of diplomatic relationships with Cuba on December the 17th. Ah. So he chose that date very intensely because he, he knows how important it is for Cubans. Right. That we, particular date, yes. Uh, well, let's talk about Laisis Queseda Vera, also, uh, who's mm-hmm. capturing the, the culture that sort of offsets the kind of economic deprivation, and she's bringing dance into her photography, both dance in the, around her world as well as in her domestic world. Right. So uh, I love Lacey's work uh, because she's very, a very prolific photographer. First of all, she's a female photographer, which in Cuba is, is a big deal okay. because for many years it was a totally male-dominated field, photography. So there were not so many female photographers. So she's one of them, and in fact, a very good one. Uh, not only she's uh, a female photographer, but also uh, a photographer in Cuba who uses color. And color is a, a kind of a recent, uh, a recent aesthetic for yes. Cuban photographers because for many years there was a, a lack of, of color materials for them. So she had really mastered uh, color photography. And Lacey, um, again, she does reportages on the, on the countryside because she originally comes from the countryside, from a very small town in Matanzas. And, for example, rodeo, she made a whole series on rodeo in Cuba, which is not very uh, common, and it's kind of illegal. Uh, but she oh. said that one day she was visiting the town, and uh, these uh, this farmers started to organize. I mean, um, they improvised, and it was totally spontaneous. They organized this rodeo, and um, my former boss at the Annenberg, Patricia Lanza, uh, especially Patricia felt that rodeo was an amazing uh, thing to show in LA because of the similarities with the Californian culture. And also, one of her most important series, latest most important series, is about ballet because yes. uh, her eldest daughter, she's a ballerina and she belong, belongs to the uh, National Ballet of Cuba. So she began by uh, documenting the life of her daughter and it became a this wonderful series that you can see in the show and not only in the show but in many of the banners around century city you can see uh lacy's daughters yes, and yes. um the other thing about 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 lacy's which uh is something that i admire about her a lot is that lacy's is a single mother so she's a single mother with two daughters she lives in a very rough neighborhood in havana and yet she has time 
to make this incredible work. The embodiment of Cuban ingenuity, and we're going to open that up a little bit, but I want to make sure everybody who's just tuning in, my guest is Ileana Sepero, art historian, curator, and art critic, who's curated the exhibition Cuba Is. It's at the Annenberg Space for Photography in Los Angeles, where the Schubert Theater used to be, folks. This exhibit is part of the Getty's Initiative Pacific Standard Time Los Angeles, Latin America. It, this exhibit at the Annenberg Space is through, it's open through March 4th, 2018. So the ingenuity I wanted you to bring up is there is in a particular racy, uh, adaptive, uh, the, the cheerleaders and chonga girls, I'm going to get out of your way and you can just tease the heck out of everybody with what's going on, what's coming through, and what we don't want to miss when we look at their series of photographs. Right. So ingenuity. Uh, we also wanted to pay an homage to Cuban ingenuity, and that's why our show chronologically, I mean, in terms of, of time period, begins in the 90s. During the special period, the 90s is the time when uh, the Soviet Union fell, and Cuba lost uh, all the subsidies from the Soviet Union and from the former socialist bloc. So this is a moment in which uh, the Cuban people endured a lot of hardships, there was no food, no public transportation, many diseases proliferated, and Cubans had to find ways to, to um, replace objects that were not available anymore and to find solutions for everyday problems. So we have a whole section uh, represented by Ernesto Rosa. Ernesto Rosa is a Cuban-American designer who lives in Aventura, Florida, and he has been collecting all these objects from the 90s till today. And that, that, again, that Cubans made um, to, to replace the lack of everything. So you have in the, in the show, you have, for example, the image of uh, an ashtray made of uh, acrylic tubes used for, for artificial insemination for cattle. Yeah. So the, the machines would, would stop because of a power outage the acrylic would melt and the workers would create objects with this melted acrylic. Wow. And with, yes, with, they would make objects that they were necessary for their homes. You have another image of a fence made out of packages of birth control pills. Yes. Someone was working in that factory and there were no pills, but the packages were there, and he um, very brilliantly created a whole fence to divide his house, and the fence has this beautiful golden, uh, golden yellow color, so when the sunlight would reflect on the fence, you would have this incredible glow, uh, golden glow around the house. And then you have, um, for example, lamps um, made out of Coca-Cola uh, cans and uh, cotton with kerosene, just to uh, to leave the house for hours and hours during the power outages. So these are the kind of things that you're going to see in the show. And when you talk about the Chonga girls and the Cuban girls and pioneers, we have this pair of two series, one by Luis Hisper. Luis Hisper is, is an American, is a Cuban-American artist who is now in New York. But he documented the life of teenagers, Latina teenagers in, in, in Hialeah, Miami, and they were called Chonga, and this culture of Chonga girls who, you know, wear a lot of bling bling and long nails, etc. They have a particular aesthetic, and they have a very thick Spanish accent. Um, it was a culture that was born 
with uh, the birth of hip-hop culture in the 90s, etc., and also encompass Cuban teenagers. And we pair that with a series by Henry Eric Hernandez. Henry Eric Hernandez is a Cuban artist who lives in Cuba, and he made a very poignant series about yes. child prostitutes in Havana. And this, these girls are posing uh, to the camera with their uniform skirt, which is yellow mustard, and a different top. I mean, in, in Cuba, the, for middle school and high school, you wear a, a mustard uh, yellow skirt and a white blouse. So these girls, after class, they change their white blouse and they put very sexy tops, and, you know, they, they go to prostitute themselves with tourists. So we wanted to compare this, these two lifestyles, one in Miami, one in Havana, to talk about youth culture because, again, we, this is another reality that we wanted to present to the American audience, which is, is very uh, poignant, as, as I said, and very um, it is something that should be discussed more than it is in Cuba about this phenomenon of sex tourism in Cuba. And so we, we've we got so much more to tease people. I'm going to, you know, but we, uh, Ileana and I, we pre-recorded an interview uh, earlier. There were some technical matters with that. But since these two interviews are so exclusive of one another, details, I'm going to podcast both of the interviews so that everybody gets uh, the the benefit of that I have with talking with Ileana twice. And so uh, so with some of the, the time remaining, Ileana, if you could talk a bit about that sort of the diaspora, and that is what Alexis Rodriguez Duarte and Tico Torres, they're a, a unit. They, I have, was privileged enough to hear them give a talk at the and watch f- folks at the Annenberg uh, Space for Photography website for those free Iris Nights lectures. The uh, Alexis and Tico are, are a classic, if I may be so presumptuous, Eliana, of the that they were they left when they were sort of first graders age when 61 and they lived yes. they were raised in Florida but they'd always heard about Cuban culture but they were they were sort of a little you know a little allergic that's mom and dad's thing we got our own american thing going on so that but the more they learned about it as their stars rose internationally in their photographic portfolio they began to discover that Cuba really was something very, very cultural, and it keeps driving them. You want to talk about the uh, the sure. Alexis Tico sure. pair? The, yeah, Claudia. One of the things that I wanted to do in this show was also to highlight the success of the Cuban diaspora, because the Cuban diaspora was something. I I grew up in Cuba, and I grew up uh, learning to hate uh, and yeah. and uh, this this kind of group because the government had a very aggressive discourse against the Cuban diaspora. They totally demonized the Cuban diaspora. And we, they, they were called all sorts of names, uh, traitors, calm, warm, you name it. So, of course, this is a different reality. Uh, it, it was pure propaganda. And one thing that it, it kept me thinking was the moving speech that Obama gave in Cuba, yes. which for the first time, he told Cubans how proud they should be, of how proud they should be about their, you know, their uh, comrades, their their fellow countrymen in the U.S. because of all of contributions that the Cuban diaspora has given to the U.S. So this is something that is a source of pride, and I feel very proud myself of of the Cubans here, and that's why we have a whole gallery 
um, of portraits made by Alexis Rodriguez Duarte and Tico Torres of, you know, uh, people like Narciso Rodriguez and Isabel Toledo, who are fashion designers and who have dressed um, first ladies in the U.S. Uh, then we have um, Andy Garcia, a famous Hollywood actor. Then we have Tachao, a musician. We have, of course, the big Celia Cruz. She's huge in the Latino community in the U.S. And by the way, Celia Cruz was never allowed to go back to Cuba, even, even when her mother was agonizing and dying in Cuba. Fidel Castro himself never let her go back uh, yeah. and see her mother. And then we have the new, the very new generation, uh, for example, Sabrina Pansterski, uh, and I hope I am, I'm pronouncing her name properly, and she's, her mother is Cuban, and she has been dubbed the next Einstein. She's like a sort of Cuban, uh, Cuban-American prodigy, and um, she, she entered MIT with, when she was 14 years old, and she created her own plane when she was 14 years old, and you know, she's now in Harvard. So these are the people who are part of the Cuban diaspora. And, and that's the other thing, that's another message that I wanted to convey in this exhibition, that we are all one people. We are not divided. All these divisions that the Cuban government had tried to create for six, almost 60 years, they don't exist. We are one people. And not only that, most of the income that Cuba as a country received come from the remittances of all the relatives in the U.S. So Cubans on the island, mostly live out of the remittances that are sent from the U.S. So it doesn't make any sense to keep creating barriers between Cubans inside of Cuba and Cubans outside of Cuba. We are one people, and we will always be one people. And that was one of the most powerful messages that I wanted to convey. And then I know that we are running out of time. I, I just want oh, to add something. Please. And it is my gratitude to the Annenberg Foundation for thinking uh, of Cuba when the Getty um, was organized, Wallace, Miss Wallace Annenberg thought of having an exhibition of Cuba, and I'm very grateful for that, to, to put Cuba on the map in a way. And uh, my special thanks to the staff at the Annenberg, and especially to Patricia Lanza, the former director of the Annenberg, who supported my vision, and I can't be more grateful to her, because, Claudia, this is an uncomfortable show. This is an uncomfortable show because... People have very, very fixed stereotypes of Cuba, very fixed images of Cuba, from one extreme, extreme to the other. And this is a Cuba that is complex. This is a Cuba that, for example, talks about how they pirate American movies, American um, shows, like people in Cuba watch Game of Thrones every week. Yes. All this is a big traffic of data with El Paquete. Every day people are consuming American uh, shows information through this homemade internet that people traffic. So this is this is a show that breaks many stereotypes that people have of Cuba. And without the support of the Annenberg and especially of the Patricia Lanza who supported my vision, this wouldn't have been possible. And I want to say to your credit, though, it it may be intentionally and surely an, an uncomfortable presentation, but. When we get contacts because of the the power of your insight, that the context makes it all make it's it doesn't remove the discomfort, but the context makes us feel really a lot like okay, all right, we've got a better understanding. So you you just lift 
you leave with such a larger sense of what's what's there in Cuba and and uh, you know across the Straits of Florida in in Florida as well. So so I want to make sure to give I a lot of credit to uh, to the designer who yes. made a wonderful show yes. of of setting up all these narratives who are uncomfortable like the life of the one percent, like the class disparity, racism, child prostitution, yes. all those all uncomfortable it. truths are very well set up because of the designer. She did a great job. A great job. So I'm going to close. I want to thank you. I'm going to give the, the details, and we'll, we'll put it up on the podcast, too. The Anwerk Space for Photography, it's at the 2000 Avenue of the Stars in Los Angeles. The days they're open are Wednesday through Sunday, 11 to 6, and they're going to be, uh, for New Year's Eve, they're going to close at 4, and they're going to be closed on January 1st, the New Year's Day, but it's free, as I said. There's other exhibits. Watch at the AnnenbergPhotospace.org for more details about lectures, and we're going to close out with El Chisma from Celia herself. Thank you so much, Ileana, for calling it in and your special time with your family in Barcelona. You're very welcome, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you for this incredible opportunity. I thank you. All the best. Take care and happy holidays. The same. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with Malcolm Warner's excellent interview from the Lagoon Art Museum, now going on until uh, January 14th, and that is the California Mexicana Museums and Murals. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for this segment is Malcolm Warner, Executive Director of the Laguna Art Museum, here to talk about the current Pacific Standard Time participating exhibition now at the Laguna Art Museum entitled California Mexicana Missions to Murals, 1820 to 1930. Malcolm has been with the museum now for nearly six years. Previously, he was deputy director at the Kimball Art Museum, Fort Worth, Texas, senior curator of paintings and sculpture at the Yale Center for British Art, New Haven, and curator of European art at the San Diego Museum of Art. As well, he has curated exhibitions at the National Gallery of Art, Washington, the National Portrait Gallery, London, at Yale, and the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California, the Walters Art Museum, Baltimore, and the Museo Tyson Miza in Madrid. He remains the leading authority on the British pre-Raphaelite painter John Everett Millet and as long-term project is preparing a catalogue raisonné of the artist's works. Malcolm Warner is here to talk about the cornucopia now at the Laguna Art Museum California Mexicana Missions to Murals, 1820 to 1930, in its final weeks as a part of the LA Basin-wide Pacific Standard Time exhibitions. Today's interview is officially a teaser to make sure everyone is enriched by this installation before its last day, January 14th. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Malcolm Warner. Oh, thanks for having me back, Claudia. It's great to be with you again. I always enjoy your guest appearances. You grant me them every time I ask. And this is a special special round. Congratulations, Malcolm, on a maximal effort. Years in the making. 
jaw-droppingly rich assembly of over 100 artworks drawing from the generosity of know-how of curator Catherine Manthorne and the collaboration with 50 collections under your leadership. Did that leave you breathless after all of that? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. It, I like your choice of the word cornucopia because it is that, that kind of exhibition that uh, really is a sort of massive compendium of every kind of work of art or image that somehow came out of the relationship between California and Mexico from the time that California was literally Mexican, you know, and the early years of the 20th century. So it covers a wide historic range, it raises a lot of issues, and it includes a lot of work, as you mentioned. And the California Mexican, it's for the artists, it's for art historians and historians. Tell us, Malcolm, about the theme you're striking within the Pacific Standard Time, LA, LA Latino American and Latino art in Los Angeles. Well, when the Getty announced its new Pacific Standard Time initiative, you know, they've already done a couple before this. Right. The new one, which the Pacific Standard Time is a sort of constellation of exhibitions largely funded by the Getty that all have the same theme and which happens simultaneously in museums all across Southern California. So when they, they announced the new theme for 2017, which was uh, Latin America, we all started thinking about what we could do that would fit in with that theme, of course, because everybody wants to work with the Getty and uh, yes. everyone wants to get a, a nice, generous grant to up their game a bit and do perhaps a more ambitious exhibition than usual. So um, in our particular case, of course, because we're a museum dedicated to California art, we wanted to do something Californian but also Latin American. And it seemed to just come naturally to do a show about the California-Mexico relationship. So that's how we... We homed in on that theme, and then we were lucky enough to find an expert on the subject. Uh, you mentioned Catherine Manthorne. She's a professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and she's done a lot of scholarly work on this subject, and so she was a great person to have on, on the team as, as our guest curator. And on the front window there, it's the theme is carried further with the traffic embedded in that. What's that all about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if we quite understand that. That's, uh, that was passed down to us from the, the Gettys, the marketing people for Pacific Standard Time. They came up with these cute slogans. And in, for uh, the one that kind of relates to our exhibition was something to do with L.A. before there was traffic. What it is, <laughs> is uh, it's referring to the painting in our collection that, play, that played a big part in uh, inspiring us to do this show, actually. We have a very early image of California, specifically the San Gabriel Mission, yes. um, painted when California was part of the United States of Mexico, not the United States of America. It's by a, a visiting German artist called Ferdinand Depp, D-E-P-P-E. And so it's kind of a great starting point for us. It dates from the 1830s. And it shows San Gabriel quite unlike San Gabriel is today. You know, San Gabriel, that poor mission is now surrounded by uh, freeways and heavy traffic. So I think the inspiration for that little slogan, before there was traffic, came from that painting. Well, Malcolm, you, you short sell that, that it's actually, there's traffic of the Jesuits and Franciscans, the traffic of the conquistadors, oh, yeah. the traffic of 
the merchandising, like with Norman Rockwell, introduction of raisins in the 1920s. You've got so much commercial, theologic, and nationalistic sort of traffic, so I think it fits perfectly. Take a bow. Yeah, it gives you an idea of the variety in this show that you can go from uh, one of the earliest images of California from the 1830s of a mission, and then further deeper into the exhibition, we get into the way in which California and Mexico were looked at uh, in the eyes of the world as both places of abundance and plenty. And there's this, yeah, this Norman Rockwell painting uh, that's all in celebration of the California Raisin, commissioned by Sunmaid. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, in other words, we were looking for any kind of imagery that connected those two regions together and in some sense regarded them as having um, common characteristics and interests. Well, uh, frankly, because I don't want any listeners to shortchange themselves, I could camp out in front of any one of these works for quite a time. I'm estimating, like, the time it would take to read a long-format magazine article. So, I, I mean, every single work is an entire essay to digest on so many levels, would you not say? Certainly, yes. There's, there's a lot to think about. And it, it arises from the fact that it is a thematic exhibition, I suppose, because it's a big theme. And um, there are so many different facets to it. And they all come out in visual form in all these works of art. So that relationship Mexico-California, the U.S.-Mexico relationship as it plays out on the West Coast. It's a very complicated story, and yes, any historian especially of that uh, subject could spend uh, a lifetime probably <laughs> teasing out all the different implications in, all the, in these works of art. Well, speaking of how an, a historian would be reacting to this, I must say I was struck a bit by how dicey the subject matter is to present in short explanations on each of the artwork's labels. Intentionally, you're, I, I think you have to leave out, you can't go on and give volumes of historical mm -hmm. understanding, but certainly you are leaving it to each patron's interpretation what's going on from your very broad brush explanation. Yes. Well, the, the labels are, they're short. Uh, when you think about how much there might be to say about any painting. But I guess that's always the case with those, those little labels next to works of art in museums. We, or at least the, uh, the, the guest curator of the exhibition, Kathy Manthorne, and her team of uh, collaborators did have the chance to elaborate on things in the catalogue. So if you buy the catalogue, you, you, you have plenty, to, plenty of information and ideas to mull over. It's 328 pages, actually. So the, um, yes. but those little labels, perhaps um, we even made them shorter than average because they're bilingual. So yes. they occupy twice as much space. We, we're all, all the museums taking part in the Getty's Pacific Standard Time were encouraged to do Spanish labels for obvious reasons, you know, because it's a Latin American thing, as well as uh, English ones. And somehow... It always seems a little bit uncomfort uncomfortable for us museum people to put up really big labels, you know, because there's, it always seems something a little bit uh, disrespectful to a great work of art to put up the, the thoughts of, a, of an art historian written large. Sometimes um, when it's a small work of art, the label might even be bigger than the painting. <laughs> so uh, we have a natural kind of built-in tendency to restrain ourselves 
And also, you know, the fact is that, sure, you can't explain the complete implications and meaning of a work of art in a hundred words, but I don't know if you could really explain them all if you, even if you had a thousand words. You know, there's no limit to it, really. Um, you, you just have to give the visitor a few bits of information, a few ideas to chew on, and I think that, that's what we've done in those relatively short labels. Well, I'm glad to get that perspective, that delicate balancing act, just even off of the aesthetic about how much space it takes. And I, it's kind of a zero-sum kind of game going on is how much, t where do the eyeballs spend the most time in all that reading? Or can we just, can we just look at each of those strokes within an artwork? Or Well, that, I'm glad you said that because um, it's, it's always a little bit uh, disappointing to us when we watch people going around exhibitions and they spend uh, three times as long uh, reading the label as looking at the work of art because for, for us what we we're trying to do in those labels is just to tee up the uh, the work of art you know just prepare the the visitor a little bit for the kind of thing that we want him or her to think about but the main thing is for them to, to look hard and think not spend too much time reading exactly well for those of you who have just joined us my guest here is Malcolm Warner, Executive Director of the Laguna Art Museum, talking about the maximal California Mexicana Missions to Murals 1820 to 1930 in its last weeks as a part of the LA Basin-wide Pacific Standard Time exhibitions with cultural fair for all over these winter holidays. Well, you've alluded a little bit to the range of artists, they include Americans, and I, it's loosely termed because as, as, and I'll shout out to Cody for giving me bonus time all around the, the exhibit uh, recently in preparation for this interview, the citizenship of some of those artists was spanning Mexican, Californian, and American citizenships. That's kind of an intriguing backstory, but the artists themselves include Americans, Mexicans, Germans, and French, and those origins don't they, Malcolm? They bring an interesting influence and a bias toward culture, history, mythology, and geography, just to give you a few sweets. So that, I mean, there are some ways in which the missions are captured, the way the mountains are struck. They're all, there's so much going on with their interpretations. Would you like to tell us what um, goes yeah. through your mind? Well, yeah, I've, in this exhibition, uh, as much as I've been involved in it, and uh, others that are where I've actually been the curator, not... not uh, just the director of the museum where it happened. I've given a lot of thought, actually, to the, um, the way in which places depicted by people who live there as compared with people who come from somewhere else, you know? And um, right. the, what tends to happen is that um, people who live in a place who grew up there, who know it and perhaps don't even know other places all that well, they tend to depict a place with a kind of subtlety and complexity that immigrants visitors, emigres, you know, the people who are just there temporarily or at least haven't lived there all their lives, can do. And there's nothing wrong either way, but I just think that the, the view of a place that people come up with when they're uh, foreigners, as it were, yes. tends to be a little bit more pumped up, a bit rom more romantic perhaps, uh, a little bit further away from the complexity of real life, and sometimes all to the good. So, for example... There's a, a painting in our exhibition by a, an artist of German um, origins called Charles Christian Nahl, N-A-H-L, who depicts people outside of the bullfighting ring that apparently... In Monterey. In, in Monterey. Which Monterey? <laughs> we were trying to figure that one out. 
Oh, it was the one in California. It's the California because we were looking yeah. at that bluff and we're trying. We're trying to. Get, there's a lot of uh, fictionalization, but go ahead. Tell us about Charles Knowles outside the the uh, <coughs> the, the corridor yeah, well, of the turtles. Well, it's just a, like an amalgam of all the uh, stereotypical ideas of what California was like, like and what Californians were like in the mid 19th century. It's like an image of old California with a capital O. It has uh, a monk buying tortillas, it has Native Americans, it has um, dashing vaqueros, and uh, even a Mexican bandit. It, there's, a, there's a bandit um, doing uh, this incredible trick on a horse who yes. um, is based on, he's kind of a portrait of an early 19th century Mexican bandit, a kind of Robin Hood type figure in early California history uh, from early 1800s, actually, who was the original model for Zorro. Is so, that uh, all in there? Wow! You know, it's a rattling good yarn in paint. This uh, this particular picture, and I, I think somehow Nal was able to do that because he was coming to the place fresher than someone who perhaps had grown up in Monterey or in California. Actually, he himself lived in San Francisco. So, Malcolm, this is where your British accent sells short a point you're making. That it's a yarn. If I can say with my American, <laughs> it's a yarn in paints. Versus a yawn, meaning you're getting, uh, it's a soporific effect. Yeah, I suppose I should have said a, r a rattling good uh, tail. Tail. That's, well, then we don't know if you're talking about the horse then. So, and that's a kind of a, a seg into, um, it has a muralistic quality. Then there's, I'd like you to give us a little local history with respect to Edgar Payne's mural. It's quite the local piece. Yeah, we took advantage of the opportunity to bring in a Laguna Beach work of art, quite an important big work of art made for the local movie theater in Laguna Beach. Yes. In the 1930s, Edgar Payne, who's best known for his landscape and seascape paintings around here, he, he got commissioned to paint gigantic murals, like 15 feet tall by 10 feet wide, to decorate the movie theater. And they were all on the theme of the history of California. So we, we, uh, we've included one in the exhibition. It's, it's of a scene outside a mission with uh, the sort of classic Californian characters that I've been describing in connection with the Charles Christian Null painting, you know, the uh, romantic, beautiful senoritas. And right. The, uh, you know, <laughs> um, the Raphaelites among yeah. us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and we were able to show it because uh, the owner of the movie theater is in the process of getting the murals restored, and um, she was kind enough to make sure that, that this particular one, which suited our theme, was one of the first ones she got conserved. So it was all cleaned up, looking great for the exhibition. Uh, it really needed work because, you know, over the decades sitting there in the movie theater, it, it, it received a lot of, like, touching up from, I imagine, from, like, movie theater managers who thought they could spruce it up a little bit over the years. So it had a lot of improvements, in quotation marks, made by people who weren't really qualified. You know, I know there was a woman in the center of the composition who's, uh, who had kind of lipstick put on, was actually red nail varnish. <laughs> so oh, they, my goodness. They took off things like that. Okay. And so now it looks just like it did when Edgar Payne painted it. So we're really glad to have it in the show. Well, as I continue this tease, we're not to be comprehensive here. We're only giving everybody morsels to chase after and spend good time chewing on and, and 
digesting that there are the missions that are mainly represented are the I say Sans Gabriel Fernando and San Juan Capistrano is there also so it's uh, and as we were talking about the different artists depending on how far and near they come from with their familiarities missions there's a there's these various idealized versions or what's going mm -hmm. on and how much the indigenous people are a part of life how, how much sort of is we'll call it airbrushing you know how yeah. it's sort of these missions on a you know like the the mission on the horizon that's divinely intended to be there but there's no ag supporting that whole community it's sort of that it's very interesting how there all of the depictions come together all throughout this exhibit yeah the the life of the missions is very much romanticized of course in in visual depictions there was a famous novel in the late 19th century called ramona which took on a tremendous currency you know there's still to this day a Ramona pageant in um, Hemet based on the story of Ramona. It originally published in 1884. So what, what the, the, the author of that uh, novel intended it to be a plea for the, the downtrodden, um, mistreated Native Americans of the missions. Uh, but actually what made it catch on with the public was the picture that it painted of a kind of... Um, idyllic life in touch with nature and, you know, the, the life of the ranch, the early California ranches and, and missions. So although it was, it, was, it was meant to focus on what was wrong with that world, it ended up propagating an idea of the world, that, that world, you know, the world of California before it became a state of the United States, when it was still very hev um, emphatically a, a Hispanic place, uh, literally Mexican. So well that, put. The, the, the picture of that um, ended up what caught on, and that's very much what informs the way in which artists uh, depict the life of the missions, too. And, you know, certainly um, uh, historians who have seen the exhibition sometimes have, have said, well, why, why, how come you didn't uh, represent the, the, the genocide of the Native Americans? And my, my answer to that is that it, this is an art exhibition, it's not a history exhibition, and that um, what we were looking at is the way that, is not what really happened, but the way in which um, artists presented their, their experiences of the world and, and what their um, audiences wanted from them. And that's a different thing from what really happened historically. And uh, Does that so satisfy them when they hear that <laughs> response? Do, or not... No, not usually. Not usually, okay. Because <laughs> uh, in a way, I, I, your point's very well taken, but I guess that, mm -hmm. that their DNA is to go after what's, you know, mm -hmm. the, the uh, veracity of the, its yeah. history. So I, let's talk very briefly, to keep teasing our listeners, with the photography. My gosh, Curtis Weston Cunningham, Soperman Doughty, and William Henry Jackson. It's just like, mm -hmm. pow, here you are to see these greats all inside Lagoon Art Museum. Yeah, yeah. We, there's a great variety of uh, media in the show, which is, again, something that I love about thematic shows as opposed to, you know, maybe a show that looks up at the work of one artist. Right. So, you know, it's everything from photography to paintings to drawings, watercolors, and even film. We, we have a, towards the end of the exhibition, we have a little mini movie theater where you can see clips from early films that pick up on the kind of themes that have run through the, the um, artistic interpretations of life in California. So one of the first movies that the great director D.W. Griffith made when he oh. came 
here in 1910 was a, a film of Ramona, and there are there were even later versions of that of that same story in film, and we have clips from them. So, you know, you see it continuing into um, very much a 20th century mode, and. Yeah, I'm proud of the way that we've we've embraced not just different media, but that that whole big range of chronological span too, because we really do go from the missions when you get the first influx of art coming into California from Mexico, right up to the muralists, um, as the title of our exhibition implies. We we end with a big mural by Diego Rivera. Um, yes because the Mexican muralists were employed by Californian institutions in the early 20th century to, to paint up here. So there's, there's a, a nice roundedness to the story of art coming up from Mexico. And, of course, we, we also deal with um, artists who um, went the other direction, American artists moving down south of the border and working there. So it's a, it's a big, as you say, cornucopic exhibition in that respect. Oh, I really want to make sure people... I don't think you're you're going to get it all in one visit, and the first visit better last two and a half hours, just to so that you don't feel like you you know you missed it. And so, for listeners to make plans, put down their schedule. What what are some special events, Malcolm, to tell us about happening from this segment forward through January 14th? Yeah, the, um, you only have until January the 14th the show we well we have regular programs at the museum usually on thursday evenings because that's when we open late and um, on january the 11th for example we have a young cellist called nicholas mariscal who uh, is a specialist in in latin american music that's at seven o'clock on thursday january the 11th excellent and that's an example of the way we've tried to weave the Latin American theme into our program of music, concerts, films, and so on through the exhibition. That sounds delicious. And so I want to make sure everybody knows, for those who are new to the area, most people know where you are, you're there on the at right where Pacific Coast Highway and Cliff Drive converge. That's 307 mm -hmm. Cliff Drive in Laguna. And... I guess the shorthand, isn't it, Malcolm? You're open every day but Wednesday. But there's a holiday closure schedule everybody ought to know about. Yeah, we're going to be closed on um, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So, and I don't want anybody to miss out either. There is downstairs a an exhibition of Dan McCleary's, maybe a, a passing glance at that from you, Malcolm. That's also part of the Pacific Standard Time, L.A., L.A. initiative. You know, L.A., L.A. meaning Los Angeles, Latin America. Um, Dan McCleary is a Los Angeles-based artist who, who works a lot in Oaxaca. He goes down there regularly because he works with a master printmaker there, and um, they, they, they make etchings together. And this show focuses on um, Dan McCleary's work in etching, a lot of the subjects are, are Mexican too, but what makes it fit the theme somehow is that it comes out of a collaboration between an LA-based artist and an artist and a printmaker down there in Oaxaca, who is a, like the technical expert for etching. And they really are beautiful works. The, the etching, you know, it's a demanding uh, yes. form of art, and Dan McCleary has, has learnt it from this master printmaker down there, and um, the results are really... Uh, gorgeous. So I really recommend 
seeing that show as well as our main level show, California Mexicana. And so you have a potential for extending that a little bit past the main exhibit, so maybe a little, a few days after the 14th, people can take that uh, in? Yeah, at least a week. At I least a week. Okay, we've got that in word from authority, everybody. Well, all this going on, it's on the eve of next year's commemoration of the Laguna Art Museum's 100 years in existence. So, Malcolm, Warner, I'm hoping we spend some real time together next year with what plans that you have so that we can all take a part of that. When does that officially begin a commemoration? Well, we're, we're kicking off with a, a big party on uh, January the 27th called our Centennial Bash. And then uh, we'll unfold different things through the year. We're making a documentary film about the history of the museum. We're publishing a, a pictorial history, which I'm working on, actually, okay. of, um, which should be very entertaining, I think, you know, as a, in book form. Um, and we have um, a big gala planned, as well as a major exhibition opening in June, uh, all about the founders of the Laguna Beach Art Association, which is the organization that became the museum. Uh, Perfect. That organization was founded in 1918, so that's why 2018 is such an important year for us. Very important. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Malcolm Warner, for being on Ask a Leader with so much to offer us. Oh, you're very welcome. Malcolm Warner is the executive director of the Laguna Art Museum, and he's been talking today with us about the Maximal, as I say, exhibition, California Mexicana, Missions to Murals, 1820 to 1930, in its last days, closing on the, at the end of January 14th. All the best, Malcolm. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, I am going to bring on UCI School of Social Ecology Urbanist, Scott Bolands. I'm going to give him the full hour to talk about Jerusalem. So much going on, always happening in that little piece of real estate. And there's a lot that's picking up, of course, as you know. So he's just the one to talk about it. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, everybody. Que te besé y te tengo y abrazar